as we approach the Christmas season, we want to have a short series on the theme of Christmas, and we're entitling this series, A Kingly Gift. It will be taken from the end of Luke 1 and the beginning of Luke chapter 2, often known as the Christmas story passage in Luke's gospel. And as we look at particularly this passage in Luke 1, 67 to 80, what we're going to find is that when God visits his people, the result ought to be joy and praise to God. In order to give us a little bit of context as to what's going on in this passage, let me briefly read for us verses 57 to 66 so that we can see what's been happening and so that we have a better context for what Zechariah is going to tell us. In verse 57, it says this, when it was time for Elizabeth, who is Zechariah's wife, and she and her husband had not been able to have children, but then um, the angel had appeared to Zechariah telling him that miraculously she and he would have a child. When it came time for her baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy, and they shared her joy. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to name him after his father, Zechariah, which was a typical Jewish practice at the time. Name him after your father or grandfather. But his mother spoke up and said, no, he is to be called John. And they said to her, there is no one among your relatives who has that name. And then they made signs to his father, Zechariah, who was unable to speak from the time that the angel had first appeared to him until this moment. They wanted to find out from him what he would like the name of the child to be. And he asked for a writing tablet. And to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, his name is John. Immediately, his mouth was opened and his tongue was loosed, and he began to speak, praising God. The neighbors were all in awe. And throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about all of these things. Everyone who heard this wondered about it, asking, what then is this child going to do? For the Lord's hand was clearly with him. What we see happening here is is quite the event at what became the first Christmas time or preparation for the first Christmas time. I wonder, what would you do if an angel appeared to you gave you a message, and then you saw two miracles fulfilled in your presence. What would you do? Well, what Zechariah does is he responds by breaking out into a poem or a song of praise once he sees these things come about. But why exactly is he praising God? What what about this situation is causing him to move from being someone who is unable to speak for months at a time to now God opens up his mouth again And the first thing he wants to do is to praise God. And what he's going to praise God for are four particular elements. The first is he's going to praise God that God is a God who acts. He acts in human history. And secondly, that he is a God who speaks. Thirdly, that he's a God who rescues. And fourthly, that he is a God who gives of himself to his creatures. And so first we see that he is the God who acts. In verses 67 to 69, this is what it tells us. His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit. This is right after he's written on that tablet. His name is to be John. God opens up his mouth, and through the Holy Spirit, he prophesies. A quick note on prophecy in the New Testament. It can mean one of two things. It can either mean he tells something about the future that was unknown before. That's usually how we think of prophecy today. Uh, But it could also mean he preached or he taught 
the word of God. That is, he preached or taught something that was already written in the word of God, and now he's remembering it and bringing, bringing it back to light. And that's what he's doing here. He's not so much telling us something about the future that was unknown. He's remembering prophecies in the Old Testament, and he's not only remembering them, but praising God for them and saying, now they're about to be fulfilled. Verses 68 and 69. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and has redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. Zechariah had much to consider in those months of silence. I wonder, what, what would you come up with if you had a self-imposed or a self-required five to nine months of complete and utter silence where you were unable to speak. Especially considering this was back in a day where we didn't have modern technology, so you couldn't type out your thoughts really quickly. You couldn't put them into your phone and show your spouse. You had to write it out, and parchment was extremely expensive. And so it was harder to do even that. What would be the first thing you would say after five to nine months of utter silence? Well, we're told he's filled with the Holy Spirit, and the first thing he says after all this time of ruminating and considering what God has done and what God was doing miraculously in and through him and the message that the angel had given him, he speaks about what God is going to do in the very near future based upon what God had promised in the Old Testament. And what he says is that God acts. The God of the Bible is the God who acts. He acts himself by entering into the human situation. And he tells us that God has entered or visited his people. That term visited is quite interesting. It's the term episkopos, from which we get uh, the, the episcopal denomination that some of you may be familiar with in other parts of the world. But the idea is it's not just a casual visitor. It's more the idea of a supervisor. A supervisor at work is one who comes to see what's happening on the assembly line, of course, and he's very interested in the details and what John, or pardon me, what Zechariah says here is that God himself is going to step into his creation and he is going to be the supervisor, the one who sees, the one who looks, the one who is no casual observer but is looking at the details. God has visited Zechariah and Elizabeth with a son, but what Zechariah is really most excited about and what he begins with is not his son, who will be John the Baptist, but rather the son that is about to be born, the Son of God, and how, he will, how God himself will visit his people by coming in human form. He also says that God has redeemed his people. That is, he has purchased them back from their slavery to sin. And he tells us that God has raised up salvation in a person. And he uses a unique phrase, a horn of salvation, not, not a term or a phrase we use today. But what it is referring to is, is those type of animals in the world who have horns or antlers, and sometimes they vie for prominence by fighting with those things. If you've ever watched a, a nature show, you might have seen an instance of an elk, two elk, or two moose, or uh, some mountain goats, or, or different animals that have these horns, and they will vie for prominence by butting heads, butting antlers together. That's the idea. The idea is that uh, when this sun comes, when God enters into human history, he will bring a horn of salvation, or the idea is that in his messianic office, he will come with enormous strength, so much strength that he will never be able to be overcome. And so Zechariah glories in this. He points this out to us. He is the God who acts, and how does he act? He comes and acts by entering into human history, by visiting his people, by taking an interest 
and by coming with enormous strength. Secondly, we see that he is also the God who speaks, verses 70 to 73. Referencing that he is the God who comes and acts in human history, verse 70 says, as he said through his prophets long ago. So he's referencing, this is all from the Old Testament. It's what God has already told us. This isn't something new. Verse 71, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of those who hate us. Very few groups, in fact, it would be hard for us to find a single group or a single ethnicity who has been so hated and so maligned as the Jewish people throughout the centuries. The amount of hate and vitriol still to this present moment lacks all credibility from any rational source. They have constant enemies on all sides. And Zechariah is excited here because he realizes this is a moment where God is going to bring salvation to his people, salvation from their enemies. Verse 72, in order to show mercy to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. That is, he's going to show mercy to us through, through finishing or finalizing or bringing about his promises to our fathers. So he showed mercy to them by promising that one day this would happen, and now we're seeing the mercy about to be displayed. We will see him remember his holy covenant, not remember in the sense that he had forgotten it, but remember in the sense that now is when he is going to make good on his former promises. The oath that he swore to our father Abraham, going all the way back, to Abraham, the father of the Jewish people. So he says, God has spoken previously in the Old Testament prophets, as we're told in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 in the New Testament, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets. And what did he promise them? Well, he promised them that he would deliver them from their enemies. Why would he deliver them from their enemies? Well, there is a particular purpose in mind. The purpose was to show mercy. God delights to show mercy. He's a holy God who has to judge sin. He is the ultimate and final judge, but he delights to show mercy. What is mercy? Mercy is not giving us the punishment that we rightly deserve. And he delights to do that. He delights to not show the just judgment for our sins. But in order for that to happen, for him to show us mercy and still be just, our sins have to be paid for in some way, shape, or form. But God delights to show mercy instead of giving us the judgment we deserve. This is a similar emphasis that Mary gives in her Magnificat, where she praises God that he delights to show love and mercy and generosity to his people. And she remembers that he is about to fulfill his promises as he always fulfills his promises. God always keeps his unfailing word. And Zechariah points us all the way back to who? Abraham, verse 73 the father of the Jewish nation. God had promised him something astounding, but Abraham never saw it finalized in his life. It was never fulfilled in his life, nor was it fulfilled in his son or his grandson or the 12 tribes of Israel, in Joseph, in the 400 years of slavery, and Moses leading them to the promised land. It was never fully realized. And Zechariah points back to those promises, some of which had begun to come about, but others were yet to come about, and he says those are about to happen. Then we also see, thirdly, that he is the God who rescues, verses 74 and 75. He is going to fulfill his promise. Why? In order to rescue us from the hand of our enemy, verse 74, and to enable us to serve him without fear 
in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. God, when he rescues, he rescues for a purpose. He rescues for a purpose. He rescues them from their enemies. Why? So that they can serve him. So that they can be his people as they were intended to be. So as his creation, the apex of his creation, they can have that relationship with God, their creator, once again, and serve him and be in proper relationship with him. We're told in 2 Timothy 1.7 that for Christians, God has not given us the spirit of fear, but rather of power and of love and of a sound mind. We are to serve God wholeheartedly, and as we do so, we need not serve him in fear if we are truly his child, truly a Christian, because we're told perfect love, the love of God, casts out fear. That is, when we have truly received the love of God, it allows us for the first time to be able to serve him, to follow his commands without fear of the judgment that we naturally deserve for our sins because we know Jesus has taken that judgment for us. Psalm 91 in the Old Testament says it this way in verses 1 to 10, a beautiful psalm, one that is well worth memorizing and meditating on. <clears throat> it says, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, My refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust, for he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler, from the deadly pestilence as well. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that strikes in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked, because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge. No evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. This is an Old Testament promise for the true followers of God. We see it reiterated in different words in the New Testament, that no attempt or no evil plot formed against the child of God will ever be able to stand. And thus, we can serve God, and we can serve him without fear. Without fear that our sins will, and the judgment they deserve will be revisited upon us, because when God delivers from sin, and when he gives judgment in the person of Jesus on the cross, it is completely paid. But we're also told that God rescues us, not just so that we can serve him and serve him without fear, but also that he rescues us so we can live a holy and righteous life before him forever. We're told in 1 Thessalonians 4.3 this, the will of God for every follower of God is that you be sanctified. That means you be set apart. You live a holy life. You become more like Jesus each day. And a few verses later, it says God has not called us to uncleanness, to sinfulness, to fulfill our selfish, sinful desires, but rather to holiness. In 2 Corinthians 6.17, we're told to Christians, come out from among them. Who's the them? The, the non-Christian world the sinful world around us, come out from among them as Christians and be separate. The word there is sanctified. Be set apart to God in his service. Personal holiness is what God demands for those who follow him. Are you living a holy life if you call yourself a Christian? Have you left some elements of sin and temptation in your life? That dark corner of the room that you, you don't want to really uncover in your soul? 
you don't want to really deal with it, and so you just leave it there. As a Christian, you must deal with sin. You must push away sin by the power of God's Spirit, and you must live a holy, righteous life, becoming more like Christ. You must repent and discard that sin. What sin needs to be discarded and repented of in your life if you are a Christian? Because when God calls us, he doesn't call us just to save us and then leave us to be. Rather, he saves us, yes, but then he progressively makes us more like his son, and one day he will glorify us completely and cause us to be perfect and live in his presence in perfection forever. But he prepares us for that moment through the life and the remaining time on this earth that he gives us. How are you growing in holiness? Fourthly, he's also the God who gives. Verse 76. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High. Now, uh, Zechariah turns from considering that God himself will visit, and now he's turned to consideration of his son, his biological son, John, the son of promise. You, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High. John would become the greatest and the final Old Testament prophet. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him. This God who is coming himself, you are going to be the one to prepare his path, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God. Once again, he brings up the mercy of God, primarily seen through Jesus, who John will prepare the way for, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the absence or in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. And then he tells us this footnote, and the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he lived in the desert until he appeared publicly to Israel. God gives a prophet in the Old Testament vein, we might say, and this too is a fulfillment of prophecy. It's interesting. He gives a prophet who is himself a fulfillment of prophecy, such as Micah chapter 4, verses 4 to 6, tells us in the Old Testament, the final Old Testament prophecy was that one day God would send this person to prepare the way for the Messiah who is going to fulfill so many other Old Testament prophecies. And this is what Jesus told us in Matthew 11, verse 14, that John the Baptist is the prophesied Elijah who was to come from that passage, Micah chapter 4. And this prophet was to prepare the way for God in human form, the redeemer of mankind. What a job. What a duty. What a responsibility. Your job, John, your whole existence on earth is for the express purpose of preparing the way for the Messiah, God in human form. And you must announce him. And remember, John's ministry took place in less than a year's time. He spent his entire life preparing for less than a year, and he was quickly cut off by being killed. And yet he fulfilled his purpose. He served, and he served well, knowing that what he was announcing was far greater than he was, and he pointed to the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. We're told in verses 77 to 78, God gives people, when he comes, God will give people the experiential knowledge of salvation. He brings salvation. He brings forgiveness of sins, what's termed the, the remission of sins. We don't use the word remission all that much anymore, except in a medical sense. Anyone who's ever had that terrible doctor's visit where the doctor says after these tests come back, I'm sorry, but you have cancer. You'll know the anxiety, the stress, the, the fear 
that induces. And yet, conversely, those who have not only been told you have cancer, but once they've gone through treatment and more tests have been done, those who hear that good news, the cancer is in remission. Oh, that's a moment for rejoicing. That's exciting. And yet we know in the medical field, in most cases, even once cancer goes into remission, there's no guarantee it will not come back. But when it comes to the remission of sins that Jesus alone offers to all who will come to him, if he remits someone's sins, if he saves them from their sins, if he forgives a person's sins, they can never come back. We are told that he removes those sins from that person as far as the east is from the west. He refuses to acknowledge or remember them anymore because he has already fully paid the price for them. Christ, he gives forgiveness, and his forgiveness and his remission of sins last forever, all the way through eternity. They cannot return. And how necessary it is for a person to have their sins forgiven. Because without it, sin will eat you just as surely as cancer eats us physically from the inside. But sin is a terminal and eternal cancer. And unless dealt with, there is no remedy. Only Christ is a remedy. We're told also that God, when he comes, will bring light or illumination to those who sit in darkness. This is a direct fulfillment and a restatement of what we're told in the book of Isaiah. That when the Messiah comes, he will bring light to those who are in the shadow of darkness. This is not how we typically think of it, perhaps, but it really is the fundamental problem of humanity. All of humanity is wandering around in darkness. They cannot find their way. We've tried all sorts of things to bring in artificial light into this world. We think if we just get a bit more education that we will reach a utopia. If we have a different political system or a different political leader, if we have certain economic things, if we go completely green, if we do this or this or this, it is going to save humanity. Foolishness. The problem is we are groping around in the darkness and we have no idea where we are going or if we have reached there or why we are here in the first place. But Christ, when he comes, he came to bring light. The thinking person looking at the world around us must understand and has to acknowledge something is dreadfully wrong. We have tried everything. We have used our technology. We have used everything at our disposal as humanity. And yet, has the world really gotten better? I mean, the fundamental humanity, have we gotten better? No, we still kill each other. We still commit murder. We still abuse one another. We have wars all the time around the world. We harm ourselves by our own actions. None of us even live up to our own standards, much less a much more important standard, the standard of God. We are stumbling along in the darkness, and we desperately need illumination. And Jesus is the lighthouse for the soul. He alone gives an eternal, true light. And without Christ, the world is hopeless. The world is without light. The world is without direction. It doesn't matter what your background is where you come from, doesn't matter what challenges you faced or the hopelessness you might feel, Christ alone can give eternal hope. He alone can give the true light that our souls require. We're told in the New Testament that the new heavens and the new earth, there's this beautiful promise that there will be no need for a sun or moon in that new place. Why? Because Jesus himself will be the light that permeates everything. It is a light that cannot be Extinguished. It is a light that will be eternal. It is the true light. 
And spiritually, Christ, when he came, is the light for the world. We're also told that God gives John, John the Baptist, and he keeps John the Baptist, the harbinger of the Messiah, till just the proper time when the summons come, as the summons comes, which we're told in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, is prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for his feet. And that's exactly what John does. He prepares the way for the Lord, and then when the Lord comes on scene, do you remember what he says? He says even to his own disciples, follow him. He is the one who must increase. I must decrease. In, in essence, he understood, I've done my job. I've done what God has called me to do. Now I need to get out of the way because the real main event is here. He is the light of the world. This brings us to two very basic conclusions, but very important ones. First of all, God does many things in the world. And when he acts in the world, it should lead us to rejoice. Do you remember how Zechariah responds? When he's finally able to speak, what does he do? He rejoices in song. He breaks out in song. It's the same thing Mary does. She breaks out into a poem or song herself when she realizes God is about to do this thing we've been waiting for. It's the same thing the shepherds do when that angelic host come to them and, and tell them, the child is born. Go see him. And they rejoice with exceeding great joy and they rush off to where the angels told them to go and they worship this child king. It's what we sing in many of our Christmas carols. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. When we realize that God himself has stepped into human history to act, to speak, to rescue, to give of himself voluntarily the thing that we ourselves could not do, it, the only proper response is to rejoice and to praise him and to glorify him. He is the God who acts, who speaks, who saves, who rescues, who gives of himself, and who keeps his word. But he also does something else. He gives those who receive, who ask for the forgiveness of sins, he gives them the privilege. That's a true privilege, to be able to serve the God against whom we were once his greatest enemies, to be able to serve him and to tell others of the great things he has done. And no one who's truly had their sins forgiven is ever going to be the same. And so we rightly want to serve him. We realize that's our duty and our delight. And, it re and we realize, too, that it results in personal growth of holiness. As the Christian children's song says, the things I used to do, I don't do them anymore. The things I used to say, I don't say them anymore. There's been a great change since I've been born again. And that great change continues on until we go to be with him. And all of this must and ought to result in rejoicing. Zechariah, when he realizes what God is doing and, and the full weight of it, he can't help. Have you forgotten the full weight of what God has done for us by coming himself in the person of Jesus? But it leads us to a second conclusion. That is, we've said that when God comes into human history, he comes to save, to forgive, to redeem, to restore to remit our sins. But it does beg a question, from what are we being saved? Saved from what? Are we saved from sin? Is that the primary thing? Are we saved from Satan? Are we saved from the world? What we're told in Scripture is that what we really must be saved from is God himself. That is, the just judgment of God against our sin. As the holy and true judge of the universe and as our creator, we are responsible to him. And so our sin deserves judgment. And he is the just judge who will judge us. It says that every day, yes, Satan, sin in the world, that's true. But ultimately what we must be saved from 
is God himself and his just wrath against our sin and the receiving of the punishment that we deserve from him. And so what we find is the good news of the gospel starts out quite bad. We have to understand the bad news to understand the good news, and that is we need to be saved from God. But the good news is that we are saved from God and his just wrath by God himself. We're saved from God by God coming into the world in the person of Jesus, and we are saved for the purpose of living for God. We're saved from God, by God, for God. Every part of salvation brings glory to God. Every part of it is him doing the work. Therefore, all glory goes to God. Therefore, the only proper response is to break out in praise and song and poetry. This is exactly the right response that Zechariah shows us. And we note that we receive this salvation and forgiveness, verse verse 78 again, we're told, through mercy. It's not deserved. It's not merited. Nothing we have done would demand God to give this to us. The way he can show mercy is if judgment is satisfied, and so he himself comes to take the judgment so that we can be saved from him, by him, and ultimately for him and his purposes. I wonder, have you been saved? Have you had your sins taken away and forgiven? If not, you can have that today. And I would implore you to ask God to forgive you today so that you can be saved. And then you too can not only serve God, but serve him with joy. And Christian, are you serving God both with joy and are you pursuing holiness? For that is what God demands of all those whom he has redeemed, to live a sanctified, holy life. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this poem or song of Zechariah and for all that it tells us It helps us to consider about who the true God is and what you've done for us. Thank you that you are the God who speaks and acts and gives of yourself. We acknowledge that we deserve the punishment for our own sins. But with grateful hearts, we also thank you and praise you that you were willing to suffer that punishment so that you could give us mercy instead. And I pray for anyone here who has not yet received that mercy, that they would reach out their hands and ask for it. It's a free gift. Help them not to wait, but to receive their remission of sins today and then begin to walk a new life, a holy life with you. I pray for my Christian brothers and sisters as well that you would help us to remember that you have not saved us so that we can sit around and do our own thing, but you have given us our marching orders. You saved us to serve you to serve you by telling the good news of the gospel to others and by living holy, Christ-like lives which will, Lord willing, result in other people seeing that changed life and being attracted to Jesus as well. I pray that you would help us if there is sin that we have allowed to fester and stay hidden in our lives as Christians, that you would convict us and help us to seek your forgiveness again and to put that sin away by the power of the Holy Spirit so that we can continue on the path of sanctification, holiness, and Christ-likeness. We remember your severe warning. Without holiness, no one will see God. And we do long to see you and live forever with you. We pray all these things 
and ask for your benefit and your guidance as we sing your praises in the close of our service and as we have fellowship time afterward. May you guide it. May it be fruitful and edifying. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.